Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 329 featuring my long lost friend, Ryan Laney, VFX supervisor and the founder of Tuos Media, uh, which is an incredible company, which we get into uh, quite a bit. Uh, before I get too much into this, I want to say a couple things. One, we re actually recorded this podcast twice because the first time we recorded it, we were having lots of technical issues. And after a, a long while, we decided to just quit and try it again once we solved those issues, which we mostly did. So you'll see us kind of rush through Ryan's past quite quickly because he kind of told the story to me twice and we sort of like, yeah, and just kind of rushed to it, which is which is okay. Uh, but I do want to also note that I, he and I reconnected because of the real-time conference. We were both speakers at the real-time conference, uh, which was great. Uh, a, lot, a really great conference and I highly recommend you guys go check it out. Go look up real-time conference. I think there's going to be another one in November and uh, it was really fun connecting with him uh, that way. Uh, but uh, Kristen, what did you think of Ryan? <laughs> So he's just a cool person just from yeah. like the work he's already done. Just he's worked on so many movies like Mortal mm -hmm. Kombat 2, Ant-Man, <laughs> Spider-Man 3. And then is that you guys met at DD with the day uh, after DD, tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. We worked yeah. on day after tomorrow. Yeah. But the reason this whole podcast is about uh, Welcome to Chech Chechnya yeah, documentary, yeah. which is this is crazy cool. Like um, what he's doing and what he will do um, after this podcast. But. Basically, um, it was a group of activists there um, fighting for LGBTQ rights, and mm -hmm. the David France made the documentary, but they needed to blur the faces and everything. So, what you guys go into that is just, and and yeah. how you had to like, well, and well, he didn't blur, blur the faces. he didn't blur yeah. the faces. He couldn't blur the faces. What they basically did is they they changed the faces uh, using. And we get into this similar technology that you would see in deep fakes. I'm just going to say that for simplicity for you guys to get the idea, but it's not actually deep fakes. And we identify why that is, uh, but it basically helps uh, uh, hide the identity of these people who are, uh, whose lives are in danger. Um, and it's quite amazing as we really get into the implications of what that is. And it's the, you know, one of the first times, you know, when we keep joking about no visual effects and big movies don't really save lives. Well, they do. These were actually tools that were used to save lives. So much so that now basically Ryan has started his company uh, and he's going to help journalists uh, and, uh, and documentary people to tell stories and be able to hide their identities in a really uh, easy way, a good way. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of great what they're doing, you know, they're basically, you know, covering subjects like, uh, you know, um, human trafficking or whatever that is. Uh, so there's a lot of things that he can do in that area. And it was just absolutely fascinating. But uh, Ryan is a really great guy. Again, I can't emphasize that enough. He It was so amazing to reconnect with him. That's one of the things that was awesome is that because of this podcast, I was able to say, oh, I want to talk to Ryan. And then I talked to Ryan. He and I reconnected. We've been actually emailing each other back and forth ever since then and just reconnecting about all kinds of amazing work. He's a brilliant, brilliant person, a very kind person, also a very humble person. So mm -hmm. I just think he's He's really great. So I'm sorry, I'm gushing about Ryan. I didn't mean to do that. But uh, listen to the whole podcast and uh, definitely check it out. And if you want to see the documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, it is available on HBO, uh, HBO Max now. So uh, go check it out. Uh, really great stuff. And uh, congratulations on the amazing work that they did. All right. We've got a few announcements, uh, Kristen. What's going on? 
Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. One will be tomorrow, June 8th, which is exploring V-Ray 5 for 3DS Max with Jonas Noel. Um, and you can d- discover the new features of V-Ray for 3DS Max, plus workflow tips with an expert user. And then the day after on June 9th, we've talked about this one. It is new product announcement webinar uh, with SketchUp Studio. Um, it will be V-Ray 5 for SketchUp. And this one will be held in Japanese. And then June 18th, we have an online webinar and demo for introducing Chaos Vantage and Chaos Cosmos. So... Perfect. Uh, speaking of which, go to chaos.com. We do actually have an update to Vantage, update 1.3. It's available now if you guys want to check that out. Uh, there's a couple of great new things that we've added uh, support for two-sided materials so you can do curtains and you know glowy lamps and all those types of things that you love to do with two-sided materials. Uh, and we also offer uh, additional denoising options, new camera options, a bunch of updates, actually really great updates. So definitely check it out, Vantage uh, 1.3. Uh, and it's uh, still available uh, for a free license if you'd like to give it a try for free. So really cool stuff. Uh, that's and you know, again, check that out. Uh, if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash cggaragepodcast or chaos.com slash cggarage. And if you'd like to watch us on YouTube, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. Perfect. And if you guys have any questions about this podcast or other podcasts, uh, episodes that we recorded or have suggestions of new ones, labs at chaosgroup.com is a great place to reach us at. And don't forget to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and uh, share us with all of your friends and family sure your mom would love to hear more about what Ryan Laney is doing. Uh, actually, she would. <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a really cool. Again, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, I'm very excited about, uh, about this uh, episode with Ryan and the amazing work that he's done over at Tuos Images and about the incredible work that was done for the movie, well, or for the documentary, Welcome to Chechnya. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. We can start from scratch. We, no, we're definitely going to start from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> we are definitely going to start from scratch, and we're going to get it because the latency also is not not uh, not perfect. So, all right. So here's here's what we're going to do. So so for 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 people listening, uh, we've already done this, but we're going to recap it for you guys and give you an idea of what's going on and where Ryan and I met. But I think. That's kind of halfway through the story. <laughs> but what was interesting is that Ryan and I actually had similar similar pasts going on as well. So uh, Ryan, tell us uh, uh, give us give me a recap story of where your your passion for 3D started and where did that happen? Uh, with CAD. And we found out on the, the last one that we uh, went to school a few miles apart. Yes, <laughs> which, was, which, was, which was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, I was working out of high school for a, a design firm. Um, they were all paper and mylar, mm-hmm. and uh, s- sort of drug them into CAD 
with this hybrid approach to things of, of doing sort of pattern work with the computer-aided stuff and then uh, hand-drawing uh, the pretty stuff on top. Right. So basically what you were doing, you, you figured out how to do 3D and CAD and do these, what they were calling back then, hidden line drawings, right? So it was basically yeah. just shows the line and then it doesn't show what's behind the line, which yeah. was at the time was, took as long as ray tracing today <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, quite often. Well, yeah, actually it's longer than ray tracing if you think about it. Uh, yeah. Camera moves would take minutes. Yes. It was a very, very tedious project. So type uh, type in the... Uh, the uh, rotation and in, in the translation values by hand, and that would put your camera where you wanted it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and it was very yeah. painful. Um, and you also had a. You, we also talked about like uh, trying to draw perspective by hand. Did you ever try doing that? Oh yes, I, actually, quite often that was the that was that was how we did it. Um, and it's really, um, uh, you know, actually, I think I did it. May have done it in like high school drafting or something we did perspective drawings is the first time I did it. Um, but I, the first kind of venture into applying CAD to like a business model was uh, doing these hidden line drawings with um, uh, uh, for perspective drawings because it took so long, uh, several days sometimes to do a, a like a big house uh, and in perspective drawing and you could do it in CAD in you know, a couple of days, <laughs> right. which is now, you know, minutes. Right. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. And that led to um, uh, uh, buying up some software upgrades and some hardware upgrades. And I ended up with an SGI at one point and uh, tripped and stumbled into visual effects. Um, which right. Like a, so so you, how did, the time. how did you get into visual effects? That remind me about that. What, what, what was the, the thing that sort of allowed you to sort of, I mean, obviously having access to an SGI automatically puts you in a skill set that other people require, but what, what, what else did you, uh, uh, did you, uh, how did you get into Yeah, the effects? SGI software, I had a TDI Explorer, which was a Thompson, Thompson digital image, and mm -hmm. it was uh, really fantastic at uh, media and, uh, non-precision things. So I was still doing a lot of stuff in AutoCAD. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I had this like really expensive piece of hardware that was really good just for rendering. So I could, if I built something in CAD, then I could move it over and, uh, and render it on the SGI. But, um, I was looking for like how to, how to maximize that use, the use of that thing. Cause it was really awesome, uh, to have a supercomputer, um, in the office. Uh, and, uh, that got me involved sort of like learning how to use it um, I was dependent on and then became very active in the um, uh, news groups. So, uh, and there was one on Dynamation. I had the, the Dynamation package, which was really great. Uh, Santa Barbara Studios made it originally and then uh, uh, Wavefront bought it um, and got involved with effects through that. And uh, uh, Kleiser Walls at Construction Company in Los Angeles was looking for somebody to help out on a project. And, uh, Nobody else was available, so <laughs> so I got the opportunity uh, and uh, spent a couple of years with them uh, doing just uh, fun B, B movies. Now, like what? Tell us some of the movies you did. Uh, Mortal Kombat Two, which was nice. uh, yeah, great stuff. There's a new one out. I saw the trailer for last week. Mm -hmm. um, fantastic work, <laughs> relative to. <laughs> What we did in the garage at uh, in Kleiser's house in the Hollywood Hills. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Good times. Good times. Sure. Now, do, you must have known 
Pat Finley because I think Pat, I remember at one yeah. point he he actually stayed at his house, like he was staying there for yeah. a few months when he was moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All right. No, that so we we were actually working out of the garage at the house. Got it. And then I think when uh, uh, we got it, we you know it kind of moved up a notch and got an office uh, on Yucca and Vine. Mm-hmm. fantastic art deco building there, which I was thrilled about working in an art deco building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's when Pat came down. And so he, he was working out of the, the Yucca office and then staying in the house. He and uh, Greg Juby, I think. Another, okay. Another name from back then. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. And this is, this is, uh, 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 I guess, uh, so that was your first job at, at, you know, sort of going for Kleiser Walzak, great company. Uh, I think their main office was actually in Massachusetts, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually had a fantastic deal with a uh, an art uh, school there, and they had this amazing uh, building that they were working out of. And they had uh, they were pulling students straight out of school and teaching them, you know, the the, the next level, which was a great deal for everybody. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Pat was in that group. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, and Pat also had an architecture background as well, I think, as well. Funny, how did I not know this either? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know how I know that? I'm reminded of that because I literally just got a text from Pat today because uh, he and I have the same accountant and we've been complaining about our accountant not getting back to us by email. But that's a different story. But nonetheless, he reminded me about architecture. He's like, ah, you know, it was funny to do that. He lives in Florida now, by the way, so you know. <laughs> Um, so that's really interesting. Uh, but you, you had mentioned you'd, you'd worked at several other really kind of awesome studios and there's some other cool projects before you and I met up at DD. So tell us a little bit about some of the other places you were working at. Uh, the windy road of Ryan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, so while I was at Kleiser, um, uh, there was a, a woman that I worked with there whose boyfriend worked at Mannix. And so we got to talking right. about shaders uh, he was working on the Matrix, which at the time I think nobody was quite the, sure what it was going to be. The first one, the yeah. first one, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, Steve Demers was uh, the guy that worked at Manix, and he um, shader writer, and we we strategized on how to create fleshy shaders for the the big C the harvester scenes. Oh, um, right. And, uh, you know, it was, again, like back then everything was a cheat. You, you couldn't afford to ray trace depth or anything in, in, you know, anything that's wet. It's got like a specular layer and, you know, depth layer. So, so we figured out we could, um, slide UVs around and make it look like it was deep. Anyway, techie, stupid techie stuff. Uh, so that got me introduced to Manix and then, uh, I'm so, so I moved up to Manix, uh, I mean, right at, right after Matrix came out. And that was in the Bay Area, right? That was Bay Area, yeah, Alameda, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, really fun. They they uh, they had um, a naval air station on um, Alameda that had closed down uh, one of the budget cuts things. Government and wasn't that near station. the MythBusters were up there too? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So we also blew stuff up. yeah because there was uh we were literally at one point we were the only company on the whole whole end of an island right like the last mile of a three mile island um (laughs) and eventually there was like a bus company company that painted buses like and so now it's quite populated they they but uh um but it was fun being kind of like out in the middle of nowhere kind of off the grid and being able to uh, shoot elements or uh, do whatever 
stuff. Um, uh, yeah, that was good. Good times there too. Blowing um, stuff up is always fun. It's always always fun. always fun, <laughs> especially yeah. you're not supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was jealous on uh, iRobot because uh, Eric Nash, who was a VFX supervisor, they went to shoot some elements, and this is when we had the stage at DD, and then they, they had they had still kept part of the stage segregated to actually do shoots, mm-hmm. and they were shooting explosions on that stage, and so I'd be working, and my desk was right up against it, the wall, and so my desk would go like. <laughs> just like just shaking so then, you, were, you were down by the whale yeah yeah oh. yeah well in the in the stage area yeah yeah, oh, yeah. and then at one point i was like I, the, my desk was shaking and i said i thought they were done with all the explosions and then it's like oh no that was an earthquake <laughs> <laughs> but yeah shooting explosions is fun <laughs> Well, cool. Okay, so you're working on skin stuff. You're working on shaders, which was interesting as well. Was that there was somewhat, you know, I guess they were somewhat digital human beginnings of that kind of stuff that you were kind of doing at that point, maybe. Yeah, that. Well, I mean, if you want to call a skin, uh, you know, transparent babies or whatever. That's. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, but the, what we did, <laughs> the funny, uh, funny next project was uh, called "Bless the Child," and it had a swarm of hairless mole rats right which are oddly enough well suited towards skin shaders so excellent excellent it's been another iteration on that uh-huh. <laughs> uh um really creepy uh uh sort of effect to be working with swarms of rats yeah uh, there was a whole ai end of that too which was interesting of how do you get you know um rats to swarm and you know we we're looking at uh you know the hardware back then was not we've got more in our our cell phones at right. this point. So, um, uh, everything, like, like I said, like everything back then was sort of like struggling with resources and memory limits and how do you render, um, 500 things or how do you render? Um, so we, we spent a lot of time like figuring out efficiencies on getting, getting stuff through. I worked with a, another guy at Mannix, um, uh, Mauricio Baki, who's done, he's done a couple of fantastic short films, uh, he, um, and a woman named Dev Petty and I, and a guy, um, John Daniel did a test for the matrix sequels and mm-hmm. we were able to render, um, 10,000 Sentinels and 500 APUs, um, and a, a handful of diggers all in one scene and, our rendering times were less than an hour, which we thought was fantastic. You know, this stuff is real time in a game engine now, but yeah. uh, at the time that was a really big threshold is like to get your renders down under an hour. So, yeah. Um, uh, were you guys using mental ray back then on that? That was actually the first mental ray, uh, project of the show of the, um, of the, uh, facility. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. That was pretty interesting. Pretty, pretty interesting. Okay, then you spent a you spent a little time over at ILM, didn't you? Or I did. ILM was next. Um, mm-hmm. A few of us went from uh, there was like a Manix ESC transition, mm-hmm. uh, and a few of us went uh, to ESC, and a few of us went to ILM. Uh, mm-hmm. And ILM was amazing. Like the, those guys have twenty years on everybody as far as um, pipeline, uh, <laughs> pipeline, and just management of the process. I love the how they have they always have like a producer and visual effects supervisor or a team, and mm-hmm. I've I've seen that now everywhere, but uh, that was the first place where I saw this sort of like 
Well, I'm going to answer the technical questions, or I'm going to answer the how how did we do it questions, and they're going to answer the you know the the when when can we do it, right? And how much is it going to cost? And uh, like separating those um, those two conversations, I think, is really valuable for the visual effects company and for the the client because it it sort of separates this idea of like, well, you know, price and abilities. I don't right. know. Can yeah. you do it? Yes, is always the answer. <laughs> <laughs> do you have yeah. enough time is a different question. Well, that's the thing. The nature of visual effects generally is they want to see something, they have, at least back then, they want to see something they've never seen before. So your job is to do something you've never done before. So you have to say yes and just assume that you will try to figure it out along the way, right? Yeah. <laughs> Based on what we know, we think we, we you know we think we're half a step away from what we can do today. Right. Yeah. 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 And so that was also I, I remember that very. Uh, it was my first you know my first few weeks or so when I when I worked in my first job in visual effects was on day after tomorrow, and I remember going to Andy uh, Weisler who was my my CG soup at the time. And he was like, well, let's try to do this. And I, I said, let's do it this way. And I said, well, I, I've, I've never done that before. And he goes, well, neither have I, but that never stopped me. <laughs> and I was like, that is a great oh, okay. first lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so were you on day from the very beginning? Very close to the beginning. I was on the nice. modeling team. We were modeling the city stuff. So nice. like, you know. Nice. Oh, that uh, stuff it was beautiful. Yeah, it was, well, you know, it was amazing about that. We can get a little bit into that. But, you know, I, that was when I was an architect, I was an architect, I was working at Gensler, I was actually doing, you know, architecture stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was my buddy, and he actually, you probably, you remember Eric Hansen, he called me up and he says, we're, we need someone who built, to build buildings uh, for like pretty much all of New York City uh, for this movie called Day After Tomorrow. And I said, go, okay, that sounds like it. And I, I didn't know, like, I didn't know Maya at the time. I lied and I said I did, but <laughs> I didn't really know. Uh, or I'd never done it in production. And so I just kind of figured it out. And I, I was always I was so nervous. Oh, I was nervous that I was, no one's going to figure out that I don't know anything. But uh, apparently uh, I did pretty well. So uh, it was okay. But yeah, uh, it was. You had an understand, was, clear understanding of geometry. Yeah. I so. had a clear understanding of geometry. And the first lesson, it was related to what you said. Like I quickly learned that in the actual architecture world, you have to have precision within like, you know, an eighth of an inch. And in visual effects, you have to have precision within a couple of pixels. <laughs> you know, and then it doesn't matter. Like it's like, man, it's fine. It's there. As long as it looks great, then it's good. So, yeah. So uh, it freed me up a little bit. And that was interesting for sure. Uh, it's funny. Uh, uh uh, Joel Heineck, I worked with it at Manex, who was actually who ended up oh, bringing right. me to visual effects, to um, uh, digital DVD. domain. But right. one of the first things I remember him telling me of like an aha moment was, um, I don't know, I spun up about something not being like accurate. Uh -huh. And he said, if it appears to work, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah. It's really good. Well, that's interesting. Work. So Joel, obviously, I mean, Joel brought you in for uh, stealth. Or maybe was it before that? Was it on Triple X or something like that? No, it was for Stealth. Yeah, yeah. For Stealth. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but you worked on Day After Tomorrow as well, too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, really interesting. Rolling back to ILM, the last right. project I did for them was uh, Heldago, mm. which was, I wrote a volumetric renderer for that. 
Mm. And so then you mentioned triple X and that's what reminded me. Um, I was humbled by Alan's work on the avalanche for, for triple X. Like this is Alan. um, uh, What was his last name? Chapman. Alan. I think it's Chapman, isn't it? That doesn't sound right to me. Alan. It's a, it's a single syllable. I think. No, maybe it's two. I'll come back. I'll remember it. I'll remember remember it in a second, but he, he wrote, what was known back then as voxel bitch <laughs> because it was I a, wasn't going to say it. <laughs> yeah, no, we can say it. We can totally say it's it. It's called Storm it, or something now? Is that, that right? Then it got renamed to Voxel B or in, in SIGGRAPH presentations, they named yeah. it Voxel B and then they named it Storm. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he was a very smart Canadian guy who, and then left the visual effects industry to write um, uh, aquarium screensavers. <laughs> That was what he wanted to do. Really smart guy. And, you know, had his, had his like head in the right place of like what's important and, you know, friendship and things like that, where it seemed to be, he valued those things a lot. Yeah. And, uh, really liked. But also like as from a programming perspective, um, you know, I was feeling pretty proud of myself for having written this thing. And then I come in and I look at what he had done and it was so well organized and so usable for anybody that, you know, understood what, what was going on to be able to go right. in and sort of like tweak, tweak numbers. And I was re- just really impressed by his work on that. On yeah. And, I think and, the and first, how that stuff was used forward. Yeah. I think the first place that that was used was actually on the first Lord of the Rings. And it was the, the, the horses on the waterfall coming down the, that was, Oh, the, right. Right. I think that was the first time it was used in, in feature film, but it was also obviously the big avalanche sequence, uh, um, for, uh, triple X and uh, the stuff that was on Day After Tomorrow. So you were doing a lot of the, f- you remember you doing some, a lot of the fluid stuff. You were in, in the, the early days of fluid dynamics, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that was all Doug Roble and, and uh, his team. He had uh, several developers on that. Um, uh, and uh, I uh, came in for stealth, but Day was, I think, a year into the, the project and, mm-hmm. Um, still sort of working out the ideas about how to make this flooding sequence work. Um, and so I, um, uh, I was able to, luckily I was able to help out a little bit in the communication. I didn't actually do anything. I was just sort of like helped, you know, as a, you know, third party, somebody new, new Mm -hmm. fresh eyes. Um, you know, well, maybe if we did this, that's kind of, kind of all I did on on Mm -hmm. that, um, uh, but then I ended up going and um, to cover up the seams on those, I, I built a, a splash library that we were able to just write a bunch of random variables and run, you know, a hundred sims. And, and so the, the TDs could just could like plant a splash here, you know, just pull from the library. So that was, that was interesting. Well, it also helped with the limitations of the resolution of the sim that you could do at the time, right? And just added detail in areas and hide the, the low resolution voxels that were involved. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that was pretty impressive, the scale of the sim. Like they actually, Doug and his team actually flooded New York. Mm-hmm. Like yep. they, like that's, or, you know, down in Manhattan, but they, they, which is even today is, it's no, no small undertaking, but I think you you mentioned last time, like this was before, you could parallelize uh, fluid sims across multiple machines. So it was basically all they could do on a machine. It took them six or seven days per sim. Right. Um, so uh, I think what was happening was the the meshing of it, because it's, you know, it's this huge area and you've got to resolve to, you know, street level. 
mm-hmm. and the meshing of the sin ended up with around the sort of the, the high uh, high frequency edges um, uh, some sizzling and we just we just kind of chopped it off and then filled it in with uh, reprojected those tangents out to the buildings and now we've got a smooth surface that looks like looks like it works yeah <laughs> yeah no that was really impressive and I remember it was like well fluid sims you know, now we've finally figured out how to make them multi-threaded, obviously, and you can do fluids. You can do fluid sims practically in real time these days. <laughs> yeah, and now there's, and, and I think DD is actually working on this as well. Um, they're using AI to mimic sims. What what should a sim look like? Right. So they're feeding it a bunch of sims, and then they're being able to like render in these real-time volumetric renders, which I um, saw something. Uh, I think it was DD a couple of months ago. Um, it's interesting because I remember very specifically Doug Robel himself. I did a podcast with him, and it must be, gosh, I think it must have been like five years ago that I did one. And I was asking him what are his thoughts on AI besides, you know, what it can do. And he goes, he was saying specifically about simming. He goes, if you train, if you do a bunch of sims that are quote unquote accurate, and you say, here's the input, here's the thing, you just keep training, and it's going to go, well, based on what I've seen, best accurate best guess is that it should look like this <laughs> and that's and you can go way faster to do it that way yeah you know? yeah uh which is the whole nature of uh some of these ais it's just educated guesses <laughs> right yeah i mean it's doing like a lot of the um uh you know you sparse bits of inf- information turning that into a better idea i mean that's a lot of what we do um i think a- experts in fields are people who have these you know sparse sets of information in a particular field and they're able to uh create complex ideas out of those and i think the ais are uh, deep machine learning anyways are, are doing those um, it's hard to call things intelligent but uh <laughs> they're certainly specialized um, yeah. and able to make some really uh, intriguing complex associations between things yes for sure for sure so then, uh, so uh, but then you and I reunited on Stealth when we ended up working on Stealth together at some point, right? So you that was a big project that we were on. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, so stage two for Doug's fluid sim was um, to couple the water sim with a gas sim, mm-hmm. and so they for that big fuel air explosion. Yep, the camel um, hump sequence is what the, it was um, called. Yeah. <laughs> the um, uh, fuel was a fluid sim and then the fire was a gas sim and they were coupled in a way that was somewhat accurate. Right. Again, very oppressive for the, the level of uh, sort of computing power at the time for simulation. Uh, That was a massive undertaking. Yeah. I I remember, uh, I remember I was actually working on the lighting on the the camo hump sequence, which is kind of a crazy sequence if you think about it, but <laughs> as a story is concerned, but it was quite quite an amazing feat in terms of fluid sims. Um, but yeah, that's 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 really cool. That's really cool. I think the All coolest right. the coolest thing I, I remember from that project was actually um, was it Kelly Port that was flying the he had like a joystick and he was actually flying sorties through the mountains and they actually used those as the data for the Bach that they shot on location. Oh, right. So yes. it, was like, it was basically like a game engine driving a gimbal that then right. drove the production. Uh, you know, the, the C- but the good thing, there was the, you know, the, the sort of movements from the Bach and the movements through the mountains were 
pair they're they're tied together so it was you know again accurate yeah yeah i do remember that and they was good because then we had a camera that worked for both in a physical world and the other one uh but i also remember some of the moves that were done were slightly dangerous for the occupant of the buck <laughs> <laughs> like this is spider cam flying by <laughs> yeah, yeah like it's good you're gonna either you know break a finger or get really nauseous yeah. <laughs> a situation uh, like that yeah i think somebody told me um uh that the buck could pull three g's yeah that's pretty bad <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty so bad it was very 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 uh they were very uh, they had limiters that would show up there things would in the ui would go red if they, they you know went past levels or something like that right right and especially you know we're not putting we're putting actors or stunt people not you know test pilots and these things so uh so yeah it wasn't uh you have to be uh it's like formula one racers have stronger neck muscles than everybody else yeah well you know it's interesting you brought this up with simulation i worked at a company called sway and we had a fantastic we did a lot of car commercials but we had a fantastic car simulator uh that allowed us to do uh to to do perfect car motions and it was the same kind of idea you just drove it like a you know like a like a video game uh but we had all the physics built in like you know okay here's a subaru here's an all-wheel drive system we had everything it was an amazing system but they the people always wanted actions out of these cars that were like not physically possible right and so it was like okay well i'm putting super glue on the tires for something you know <laughs> doing those things. like you would literally pass out it's like well that looks good and it's like you have no idea how fast we're turning around that corner. I mean, you would pass out. So it's always a little bit different, you know, what you expect. I mean, that's the, the argument, right? You keep talking about it's like, it looks really CG. It's like, well, it gets directed to such an extreme of impossibility to the point that that's why it looks CG, you know? Yeah, and I feel like a lot of these times, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, visual effects supervisors who have a healthy history and uh, education in cinematography Mm -hmm. know that you can put the camera closer to the ground and it will feel like you're going really fast and you're, you're doing 15 miles an hour. Right. Um, like most Michael <clears throat> Bay films, those chase scenes are going like 15, 20 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're safe and, you know, the people are involved and it's, um, and you, you know, they back a camera out and you've got two superheroes that are jumping around like, you know, Gumbies and, <laughs> and they go, I, I don't know why it doesn't look real. It's, it's, well, a lot of it is cinematography, like how to, how to yep. cut together a fight scene is a very specific piece of artistry in mm -hmm. filmmaking i think and editing so, too yeah, very clever yeah, editing absolutely, too. absolutely uh well that's that yeah that's very very true very very true okay so so uh stealth but then i think you might have gone to sony for a brief stint as well right 10 years some, somewhere in there oh so, yeah so not not, brief not that short no, no no i mean in the scheme of things in in you know if you're talking about dinosaur time yeah. Right. <laughs> that is, yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Uh, Sony was amazing. Like their uh, sort of like um, a desire to throw resources at projects was was pretty impressive. But mm. uh, uh, we did some fun stuff. We got to tear up a house for Zathura. We got to um, right. Um, uh, what oh, Aviator was amazing because that was um, you know a, a historical bi biography film, right. <clears throat> not quite a documentary, but. Uh, uh, it was really fun to do, uh, get back to doing something that was accurate. So we had to do a, like a period accurate um, uh, Long Beach. Um, mm -hmm. They shot models for the Spruce Goose, and then we had you know to integrate CG with the with the Spruce Goose model and water and splashes and all that stuff. And and um, 
CG clouds, which we actually um, we put on sprites because we couldn't afford to do rendering because it was such a small project. So, so wow. we put all those clouds are our sprites that we shot clouds and <laughs> and populated the scene. So um, uh, what else did we do? Um, giant 50 foot robot made of toasters and and uh, um, microwaves. Uh, we did uh, all the energy stuff in GeForce. I mean, sorry, uh, Green Lantern. Nice. Um, right. So. That was probably the the biggest project, which was I mean I know in the the in the theater people didn't love it as much as some of the other superhero films out, but the it was really fun to to get to um, sort of like play with energy um, mm-hmm. in, in for that project because it was in everything, right? So, um, and you got to do that all in L.A. Right? You didn't move to yeah, Al- yeah, Albu- yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had teams in Al- Albuquerque. Yeah, mm-hmm. talk about remote remote learning advances. Um, yeah, they they had. Um, I'd, I'd say the coolest thing uh, about their adaptation of remote was that we had a life size in the production here and a life size in the production there, and they were on all the time. Because mm. a lot of what you miss about remote learning is you're you're disconnected from people, and mm-hmm. so if I was in the production office and somebody was in the production office over there, I could see them and go, "Oh, hey." I needed to talk to you about that thing. And then right. you could have a conversation right there in front of the TVs. It's like a run-in, but it's because it's always on, yeah. right? Yeah. You yeah. don't turn it on. I got it. Yeah. Smart. Smart idea. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if they only built half the office and then it had life sizes of the other half, but then it was all screens. So it'd feel like it was like a bear, like, you know, you would look into another world that way. That would be great. Right. Um, and, and wire it up to like the per, yeah so it looks like you're per, looking into yeah. the other office you just can't cross the barrier because it's in there but it feels like it's just the other half of the office yeah. i guess you pretty, could do that with a mandalorian set these days exactly that's what i was thinking it's like yeah yeah it's like oh yeah it's like, hi and then you like you know can touch hands but they're like just you're touching a screen it'd be kind of interesting uh well yeah that was that's that's really cool uh uh so, so Sony was fun. You did a lot of stuff there. I think you even worked on Spider-Man 3 for a little bit, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I totally, totally forgot about that. Um, yeah. yeah, we did some goo, which was um, uh, another exercise in resource limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was also fun because it was uh, cross-departmental. So we built uh, you know, tools for every department mm-hmm. to, um, to be able to interact with this atomic unit, which was a string. Mm-hmm. Um, and every department had like their tools that could operate or you know get data from the string um so that was that was a lot of fun first uh non or first amorphic character to get nominated for an annie award a cifa mm. i don't know if you're familiar with, uh cifa hollywood's a, a big um uh, group here in los in uh, los angeles yeah. in hollywood um they uh they do a lot of work around animation uh yeah and, uh, and the annie yeah, awards i definitely group. know yeah 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 same same group. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Okay, all right. Um, and from what I remember, uh, you started doing a little bit more consulting after that for a little bit, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, really, just uh, you know, this was around. I guess Green Lantern was two thousand ten or something. <clears throat> I can't remember exactly, but. Um, <clears throat> Uh, this is when, you know, d- democratization of computer graphics was sort of getting everywhere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of small companies that were wanting to do 
visual effects for commercials and they're, you know, buying a unit and then they don't really know like, okay, now what? So, cause right. there is a lot of, uh, you know, production management that goes on top of visual effects, which people don't quite think about. And a lot of people don't really talk about, but the, uh, you know, uh, okay, back to your idea of, of um, well, we've never done this before. How do we get there? Um, you do have to pace it. You know, <laughs> you do have to pace. I don't know. So, uh, so I was really just helping smaller companies, uh, you know, to sum it up in the smallest uh, uh, bit is helping smaller companies figure out that workflow for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, I felt like, uh, it was very interesting to see, well, everybody can't do it like visual effects does it because their mindset is different. I worked for one company that was a print company. Um, uh, and, you know, they've got 50 years of doing print work. And and to, to sort of come in and say, well, you know, in visual effects you do it this way. You know, that's not really the right <laughs> approach. And they had, I guess they had tried that with a couple other people. I'm like, right. okay, well, based on your technology and your workflows, here's how you might adapt what you already know into this new thing rather than trying to retool your entire company. Um, and so that's um, this sort of like hybrid place where you're taking one idea and putting it in another domain. Um, there's some real magic in that. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to, uh, I guess like your, you know, building buildings, having the architectural knowledge coming in and being able to operate in visual effects because your foundation is in building buildings. Whereas if somebody had hired a hired out like a character modeler, you know, those buildings would have looked different. Yeah. Well, it definitely became, you know, it was interesting that you, you it's interesting you say that because it definitely became an asset for me. Uh, I know that, um, you know, when we were, we were at one point we were modeling an actual building that was represented, but then we had to model a bunch of other buildings those are just random buildings and it was very clear that no one knew what the hell they were doing because all these buildings didn't look right and so andy who is also an ex-architect he says chris why don't you take control of some of this stuff and so i actually built all the stuff that was like the background buildings and they had all these other things and i had to teach everyone i was like no that's that's a party wall that's you know there's oh and there's a mechanical floor here that you don't just put windows all the way up it doesn't make any sense you know you have to have these <laughs> <laughs> you have to have all these different things and then like a party wall in new york you see how the little windows are like that that's because there's a staircase there you know you just had to teach them all these things and like oh and it became and then it looks natural then it looks natural right but that's i realized and then it was interesting because I ended up doing more design, quote unquote, uh, on day after tomorrow than I did at anything at Gensler. Because at Gensler, I was just handed designs by architects that say, make this a picture, right? And then for 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 them, it was like, we don't know how to make a building. Can you design it? <laughs> I was like, sure. <laughs> you know? And it was it's kind, kind of, of a different job. Yeah, it was great. It was great. You know? And so I, I do, and I still, I mean, it's still, it's still, it's still great. But I also you know, and it's just like you're, you're talking about. I got to learn so much every day because there's always something new that someone was learning, right? So I would go to you and you're like learning about splashes or fluid dynamics or whatever else is going on or asset management. And so you're always learning something. I loved learning. So that, that was great. That was definitely great. Keeps us strong. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and and, and uh, not only strong, but also like not bored. <laughs> True. True. Yeah. 
Okay, so I do want to get I do want to get to 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 the, to the big project that we, I want to talk about, which is uh, welcome to Chechnya and and that process. So I should let people know. Obviously, what I I you know learned about the project actually uh, because of the real time conference, uh, which is uh, you know how I reconnected with you, um, and uh, I, I checked out the documentary, and it's it's really really interesting, especially one, the subject matter, two, the technology and how the technology uh, served the subject matter. Uh, and considering it's a documentary <laughs> is even more interesting and that all of all of this comes together. Uh, but I really want to thank Jean-Michel for doing this. So tell us a little bit of a story. How did that project come about? And then we can talk about the semantics, which you and I started to do before all the tech, our, our stream breakdown. And I want to really get into the semantics of what that's about. But tell us how, how that project started, how you were introduced to it, and then tell us a little bit about what that documentary is and what you did for it. Yeah, uh, so the the documentary, well, let me just start with what the documentary is. It's, uh, it chronicles um, LGBTQ youth in Chechnya who are being persecuted for their lifestyle. Um, it's against the law. Uh, people are being abducted off the street. <clears throat> and unfortunately, because it's against the law, nobody can say, hey, I was pulled off the street and tortured for two weeks. Um, because their next question is, is like, why? Um, and then, you know then they're in trouble. Um, they also have honor killings um, uh, in the culture. Um, so the governments are, are, are um, basically torturing the peop these people to get their contacts and then they're handing them back to the family and saying, you should do something about this problem child. And that some, something is uh, usually not, not very good for that person. Um, uh, so um, David France, uh, had heard about this purge that was going on. Um, and he went to Chechnya and he convinced the people that ran the underground railroad to let him, let him film, mm -hmm. um, which is amazing. Talk about people who can, uh, speak their way into a situation. Um, very dangerous say, situation, <laughs> very dangerous situation. Yeah. He won a couple of awards for courage under fire. So, uh, or filmmaking under fire. Um, I can't remember what the exact was, but, um, but yeah, really amazing. Uh, went in, uh, was able to shoot this footage, and he's like, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen, but I promise you I'm not going to release anything until you feel like you're protected. And he told that to all the subjects in the film. Uh, and their identity so more specifically. Their identity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it, it turns out it's not just like that they went through the, escape and were able to find asylum in th something they've actually had cases where people found asylum and then were recaptured and brought back to the homeland for cleansing mm. um so really scary stuff uh when you start talking about like state actors and things like that um so there <laughs> security protocols and and all that was pretty pretty intense um but uh so david uh, he shot for 18 months and for the last year of that he spent uh, trying to get something to work. They tried um, rotoscoping and doing art filters, and they realized that that just accentuated the people's caricature instead of right. you know hiding them. Um, and they tried I to do something like a scanner darkly type effect. Scanner darkly like effect, yeah. 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 And um, uh, I think before he met me or shortly after he met me, before we found a, a solution, uh, he'd had a conversation with the production. He's like, this might never see the light of day. So they were kind of in a corner with 
a story that needed to be told, but couldn't be told with people that were in it. Like the, mm -hmm. they couldn't be seen on film, uh, couldn't be seen in the finished product. And so it was a really interesting um, combination of, you know, applying different domains, visual effects to documentary filmmaking. It's this level has never been done before and um, resource limitations, documentary filmmaking, again, you know, they don't, they don't have a uh, budget for uh, this kind of work anyway. And um, you couldn't just do like blurred out the faces or pixelated the thing because sometimes you have like three, four, five subjects all in the shot and it's just like, it wouldn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. Well, there's that. Um, uh, the biggest thing with the blurry faces is they can be undone now. If you have what? enough information. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> computing okay. power is intense. And if you give it, you give enough information, um, and you know, sort of like, uh, well, I'll give you an example. Hubble telescope makes a bunch of pictures every time it crosses the same part of the sky. Mm -hmm. And by um, sort of like knowing where the Hubble is and knowing where it took the picture and that sort of a slight discrepancy from pass to pass, it's able to fill in the pixels. Um, and so you basically end up getting a super resolution if you have enough frames. So if you've yeah. got a picture of somebody and they're mosaicked out, which a single frame doesn't give you any information, but as soon as that image is moving, you've got these sort of discrete samples of the pixels underneath and, and you can uh, you can reassemble um, blurs can be undone, um, not as much to a specific picture, but enough to, to find a, an identity. So, uh, uh, so, so, so like my pixel phone, not to digress, but my pixel phone, when I zoom in, it actually uses the jitter to find all the pixels in between the pixels and tries to get you a higher. Yeah. Yeah, it uses the jitter of your hand. It uses the jitter of your hand to an advantage to actually fill in all the pixels in between. The that's pixels. brilliant. That's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> okay, so blurs can be undone, so that's not going to be a solution. That's going to that he feels that's going to protect him enough at this point. And right? you completely lose the connection to the person. So and you know, yes, and you need somehow to filmmaking. recognize the people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, typical documentary filmmaking is you put somebody in shadow, or you make them wear a Halloween mask, or. Um, uh, you obscure their, or you shoot around their face. You just show like their hands or, you know, the widget on the desk or whatever mm -hmm. the case is. So, um, the, but we're, you know, humans, we're from birth. We have, um, uh, the ability to recognize faces. Mm -hmm. Supposedly it's, it's in our retinas. Um, right. Um, or in the, or in the wiring some, somewhere in there, but we, uh, we gain so much information from facial expressions and mm -hmm. to, to take such a heavy film and abstract the humanity from it, um, really, I think I agree with David, that it just wouldn't have worked. Um, so our goals are sort of like, well, the, the thing that they set was we want, we want to obscure these people uh, so well that their parents wouldn't recognize them, which was we thought was a hypothetical, but <laughs> turns out it was real. Um, and uh, uh, in the process of like understanding the weight of this film, we realize we also need to maintain their humanity. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it's really interesting when you, when you get constraints that there is a little, like this little small space in between. Um, how do you sort of like solve? Um, it just becomes an interesting equation. Um, mm -hmm. uh, our first, um, our first idea was to warp the faces. If we could get like a good 3d track, then we could, you know, change the face geometry as though we were changing the bones underneath and that would change the identity. It would certainly change the identity for, um, 
uh, for any AIs or any you know computer vision versions of things. But, why? Um, why is that? Why? Why? Why does that help? Just I. I, I know, but to explain to the audience why. Why changing oh, um, the structure of yeah, a face? Yeah, machines. Machines when they're when they're identifying people, they use uh, uh, relationships between our facial features to mm-hmm. understand who we are. And so there's certainly there, it used to be like a 17 point mapping. I'm sure it's gone up by then, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, pretty pretty accurate. Like you can be searched in the government databases within you know a minute. If, if they have a good understanding of, of your face, facial structure and just so determine it's relationship between eyes and nose and mouth and forehead and eyebrows that and kind ears of and yeah and yeah, ears yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 okay so so we thought um, you know based with that knowledge we thought we could you know alter somebody's and we did this test um, where we took uh, Obama and we turned him uh, we. There's a, let me back up a second. There's this picture out of University of Glasgow, which shows faces of people around the world. And it's mm-hmm. great because it is, um, it's, I don't know, 30 or 50 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, oh, I know somebody from Poland and they look just like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting, like how regional we are in, in, you know, I grew up in Houston and I've lived in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. spent some time in New York. And so you, you, you forget that, that, uh, you know, everybody wherever you go, everybody doesn't look different like they do in these port cities. You know, right. San Francisco is the same, same way is that you just, um, you kind of get used to everybody looking different and don't realize that those, those are really, there are really original looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we thought if we, in this idea of moving bones, we thought if we could move like somebody from uh, one region in the world to another region in the world. So we took Obama and we turned him into mainland Spain, uh, right. kind of like geometry. Uh, and it worked, but it looked like his cousin. So we thought that didn't quite uh, settle. Looks up like our... Spanish Obama. <laughs> looks like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like the guy in the, you know, the, the guy in the uh, the restaurant that looks like Spanish Obama. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was a good sort of like proof of concept. And then to take it a step further, we rolled in this idea of, a, you know, a, a stunt double face replacement, but we're reversing the process. We're putting a, you know, the stunt face on the real person. Right. Um, and um, around the same time, uh, we were looking at style transfer and there was a two minute papers video. Um, yeah, uh, I know I'm those sure papers. you're familiar with the series. Mm-hmm. Fantastic series at like summaries of, of work that's mm-hmm. out there. And it was, a, it was a work on style transfer, which I was, working on anyway. Um, and, uh, it had in that there was a reference to paper. And in that paper, there was one picture of a face and a, you know, a piece of artwork of a face. And I was like, well, if you could do that, you know, what if the eyebrows were brush strokes and, you know, what if lip shapes were more like, you know, uh, you know, a Rembrandt versus a Picasso. So, um, so we, uh, we found a paper that implemented one of those. It was, uh, I think it was called semantic style transfer, um, deep image analogy, mm-hmm. uh, 2017, um, and, uh, sort of hacked together this, um, this attempt to make that work. And, and we were able to, um, uh, apply style transfer in the f- domain of faces to, to do this idea of moving bones or changing somebody's identity by sort of like changing their face a little bit rather than going full scanner darkly. Right. So we we what what got it what became a little bit of a conversation because this has been in the, in a lot of uh, articles about it is that they say they used quote unquote deep fake technology. Now, 
the deepfake technology is interesting because your argument is that deepfake, the the term deepfake is more about is is somewhat related to its use case. <laughs> and not necessarily the technology that you're using. And you don't necessarily want to associate what you're doing with some of those use cases that are being used. And I, I can understand that. So let's let's talk a little bit about what you, how you qualify in the semantics between those terms. Because there is a relationship, there's similarities, but your use case is clearly very different from what you're, what you would, what you were calling deep fakes. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in I, I have to like, uh, qualify this by saying um, uh, uh, a recently discovered Play-Doh. And um, uh, so I like the idea of talking about the idea of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's more of a philosophical conversation than a, a hard position. Um, uh, but the, so the difference is uh, for us that there was great care taking and making sure that we had maintained journalistic integrity. So right. we, we added a, a blurry oval around the outside to, to yep. tie it to the visual language of the blurry oval, but also to be a, a visual indicator to the audience, hey, we've done something here. This is a documentary and we don't want to try to yep. fool you. Um, we're not creating a, a fake piece of media here. We're creating mm-hmm. an authentic piece of media here that happens to use visual effects. So, yes. um, so there's this, this open dialogue with the audience. The uh, the people that were in the Underground Railroad that, and some of the activists that were supporting that pro- system um, were aware that the things were being filmed and they were aware that this film was going to come out and that they were going to be covered. And they actually, um, David France went back to everyone in the film and got buy-off from them and said, are you are you okay with what we've done here? And they were all um, very excited about, you know, being able to get their story out and not be, you know, the front person. And then also the... The volunteers that we shot data of to, to become the Vales, um, they were actually activists, um, mostly in New York, um, in the LGBTQ community, um, or mostly in, and they were, you know, offering up their image as like a human shield. So, um, right. so they were very aware of how their image was being used. So let's go through the process. You mentioned a little bit, you know, the research you did. So explain the process of how you actually did it. I know it's for, for, for I, I, I can pretty much guess, but tell people like exactly the steps you are. You, had a, you have a, a, a destination person and a source person, right? Kind of in a mm-hmm. sense. And so explain a little bit how that works and what, how you train the data and, and, and how the final effect is done. Sure, sure. We have the subject in the film and then we have the face double. Um, mm-hmm. And the face, face double is a volunteer out of New York the, who says, I'm offering myself up as a yeah, shield yeah, for you. Yeah. So we did, obviously we did, when you're figuring out something, you don't know what's going to work and what to do. And how do you pick the two? Like, what what were the things? Like, if you're picking the second person, the shield person, you want them to be someone that would work, but also not at all look like that person. Like, how do you, what are the criteria that you did there, right? Oddly enough, we went by body weight. By body weight, okay. Yeah, or relative body weight. Like, if somebody was shorter or taller, we didn't go, like, absolute numbers, but uh, general, like, body composition works very well. So, um uh, you know, jaw lines get sharper when people are more thin and more round when people uh, have extra weight. And so uh, that was, it turns out, we, we tried a bunch of different things, but it turns out like if there was any single, like if I just in a sum it up in a single term, it's, it's a body composition. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So now, talk, sorry, go back to the, the process of how you got, how you get to, to do the, the, the two things. Yeah, we shot, um, uh, we shot data. We did, um, uh, you know, 
coming taking knowledge from visual effects and how you do a stunt double mm-hmm. is you often have the actor go through the motions or step into the scene where the stunt double is doing the stunt so that you get their lighting in the same sort of like similar lighting to what you're, mm-hmm. what you're shooting um, for um, uh, like for Ant-Man they had uh, Paul Rudd actually pantomime all the actions of the fight scene and then it was very easy to sort of like pull frames from that and and, uh, and map them onto the fight sequence right <clears throat> So, um, uh, so that was the idea, and we went through the film, uh, kind of selected all the different lighting scenarios that we needed to hit. So there was, um, you know, everything from bright daylight to nighttime lit by car lamps. Right. Um, and so we, we scheduled out for 23 subjects, um, uh, a full range of lighting scenarios, and sort of like picked which subjects or which... Um, activists need to be shot for which lighting scenarios. But that, that um, uh, data capture session lasted a week. We generated about eight terabytes of data with a, an array of nine cameras, which you turn nine cameras on and they just they fill up this space really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we wrote software to pair the, the, the view angles from the film with the view angles from the, from the database and then use that so our first step into, um, like a lot of these AI deep learning models use generalized forms. Like, let me just go pull a bunch of pictures off the internet and I don't care what they are because they're a face. Mm-hmm. Um, we were very specific about the faces that were feeding into the system, that they were already right. very close in lighting. Selective and, training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's uh, attention, I think, is, is the word that they're using these days. And if you're mm-hmm. paying, if you're, you know, if we're paying attention to something, it gets, it gets it's better we're paying attention to it. So if you give um, uh, the machine information uh, sort of in an attentive way, it can do a better job. So uh, so we were able to pull off. I think at the time, um, uh, so deepfakes came out around the same time we were starting our development cycle on this. Mm-hmm. And they were 64 pixels, and we were able to do a 2K uh, face image uh, out, mm-hmm. of, out, of, uh, out of our system. So it's a soft. Are you guys using GPUs? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And unfortunately they were really expensive because that was in the, um, Bitcoin mining boom mm-hmm. and everybody was buying GPUs and you, you couldn't find them or you couldn't. So, um, there was these, uh, uh NVIDIA 2080s were mm-hmm. a really good sort of like workhorse. They weren't the highest end of the time, but they were low, low ish power consumption for that sort of like level of computing. And they have really like, I'd say I'd say that all the GPs we had going solid for four months, right, nonstop, right, uh, um, and I didn't have one failure in in that, which isn't surprising for you know modern modern hardware company. But nice, um, you don't you don't really think about using GPUs other than like a game here or there or yep. for a render here or there, but to, to actually like put them into number crunching mode for you know weeks at a time well it's funny um, and i kind of funny you say that because you know nvidia says the difference between the, you know the geforce line and the quadro line is that the quadro line can run for months but it looks like you got the geforce computers to run for months as well which is the, also uh, yeah, what the, the bitcoin guys are doing that too so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, rtx so it's a little different than the gtx for the for the main GeForce right. line. But oh that's the rtx they're still, that's they're right. still yeah, yeah yeah um 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you've got you're training the data, you've got the data, and then you did like you said, you 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 were very and it's very visible in the film, and it says it at disclaimer right at the beginning. The people, the identities have been hidden to protect their their lives, um, and you can see basically like you kept the comp not so clean to make sure that people are aware that this is not a real per- this is not the actual representation of that person, right? Um, yeah, we added the we added the soft edge. Um, right, you was, added the soft a, edge. It was a yeah. It's called an underblur because it goes on the face underneath the veil that gets added on top of it. So it it did help us obviously to to blend the edges because we it is new technology and we were sort of pushing the limits of what image we could create. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, we really really like the idea of tying it to what traditionally is known because when you watch in the news and you see a blurry oval, you instantly know that that person's being protected. And we right. thought that was a really, really strong visual language. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like uh, what we were doing versus deep fakes, um, I think that um, to to call any, uh, do you call any um, face replacement that has deep learning as part of its process a deep fake? Or do you call any image that has its processing a deep fake? Honestly, this is a problem. This is a media problem, right? Because you could basically, like, listen, people are calling LED walls virtual production when they're not, right? They're a green screen replacement, right? right. They're not, they have nothing to do with virtual production, which is all about motion capture and everything else, right? So, you know, you're, you're and, and that's, that's fine, but they're going to call it virtual production. And at one point, do you go, well, okay, it's virtual production. But the news articles that are coming out about what you guys did is telling us like, oh, they used deep fakes for good, right? So right. the term deep is because they're using deep, deep learning or you know, deep networks or deep neural networks to do these things. And then fake is because they're faking the identity, which is technically this similar to what you guys are doing. Right. And I'm not saying you guys, you're not saying that this, but the problem is that right now the term deep fakes has been highly associated with putting someone else's identity into subjects that they're not in. Right. And without necessarily their authority or their, their authorization. And that I can understand that you don't want the same technology that's used for revenge porn to be used for what you're doing. And that's because clearly it's different things. And I don't necessarily want to, uh, to say that's the case, but what I do want to say is that the technology is very interesting technology and people wanted to make it illegal <laughs> because they don't understand what it can do when really it can be used for a lot of good, which is also what you guys are doing. So, uh, and that, that's something I just want to clarify. It's like, don't, don't, outlaw the technology outlaw what you're doing with the technology in some ways right revenge porn should be illegal but i don't think protecting someone's identity and being able to maintain that person's facial expression which is the brilliant part of what you guys did you know these people are very emotional people and they have you know when they see each other when they're worried when they're scared you see all of that and you see all of that in such a clear way while still masking their identity. And it's so authentic, which is also great because it's a documentary. So this is really, it's an all-win situation. So to me, I think you guys succeeded in spades. And hopefully you guys get a lot of recognition for what you guys did. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, there was a scene with Anne, with a young lady who's mm-hmm. spending her first night ever in her life alone in this strange apartment in this strange city. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is going through, there's a scene where she's going through the emotion of that completely nonverbal, uh, but you can read every, uh, concern, uh, trying to sort of laugh it off. No, not really. I'm really like, this is an uncomfortable moment. It's, it's really, we were impressed the first time we saw it working because of how well the sort of the authenticity of the moments came through. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. We were really uh, fortunate in having the opportunity to solve the problem. And then uh, luckily having enough knowledge from enough different, different places to, to find the solution. Yeah. Well, it was definitely, definitely uh, very powerful, uh, and, and and you did it. You guys, like I said, did a did a great job. Now, let's quickly talk about security. Like you must have tried to, you must have had some serious. There are governments that want this information. How did you protect that information? <laughs> uh, state actors, yeah, it's sort of. Um, uh, luckily, uh, Public Square Films, the company that uh, the production company. Um, had some security experts on board. And so mm-hmm. they had already worked out um, data transfer protocols, uh, how they dealt with the cameras, uh, camera data cards, how they dealt with disk drives that they were carrying around with them. It's illegal in some countries to have an encrypted drive on you at any moment. So um, so they had, um, you know, backstories of why they were in places. They had alternate versions of things in case they you know, had to handle over a camera. Um, so they, um, they luckily had a lot of in, in intelligence for how to operate in that space. And uh, so when we came on, um, we built a secret lab uh, from scratch um, mm-hmm. uh, and everything's air gapped. So we were like, well, if, we, if the plug is unplugged, they can't get to us. Um, right. No cameras, uh, cell phones, smartwatches. Uh, there were no devices allowed in, in the lab that, would, that could record. So nothing that right. could record was allowed in the lab. Um, and that really, it, it, surprisingly, it, it gives yourself some peace of mind. Because um, otherwise, you're always worried about what's the vector? How do they get in? You know, right. how, how are they going to, how are they going to find? But if you just say, well, no, you know, here's the rules. Um, it's, uh, it's much easier to manage. It's harder to get information in and out, like hand carried drives. Um, but I've done that in my career, so it's not, sure. it's not that unheard of. Um, uh, and then, you know, and it's usually like, well, when I'm in New York, you'll give me this, uh, this information. And when you're in Los Angeles, you'll give me this information. And so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. But you do have a, this little thing in the back of your head that's like, what? When, am I on radar? Am I on somebody's radar? <laughs> yeah, I bet. So I bet so. I would be. I would be. I'd be. I'd have some concerns as well, for sure. Um, well, that's that's fascinating. Uh, well, hopefully, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the the documentary, like I said, is really good and, and and serves a real purpose and brings awareness to something that I think is extremely important. Um, so. Uh, how did how did how do, how was your what was your feeling when it was done and how was it received from from for the work that you had done? Um, yeah, I mean the, the it was received. I mean we were a supporting role, 
Mm-hmm. So the film was a powerful film because Tyler Walk, the editor, um, did a fantastic job at weaving these human stories in and out of this um, uh, very stressful situation. Mm-hmm. So um, he he says it's you know it's basically a love story uh, <laughs> um, that's set in this tragedy. Um, but uh, I think that people responded well to it because it was a good story and because it was. Um, uh, an uh, an important human rights story, um, and we felt really good that the we were we played a, a supporting role in helping that story be more powerful because the audience could have a stronger connection to the audience. Um, right. There's a a moment in the film where the veil comes off of somebody who um, reveals himself to the to the press in order to mm-hmm. file a lawsuit. Uh, and there was a little conversation about how that would happen. Um, and uh, Tyler and um, the editor, Max Anderson, and uh, David, I think they made a good decision about how to do that um, and where to do that. Um, and the that was a very big moment. We screened at Sundance, and that was a very big moment for the audience uh, because you you understood that people were covered. You see the blurry oval uh, you understood what was going on, and now you see actually how different the face looks underneath. Um, so you know how well protected they are in a sense. You basically yeah, see them. Yeah. yeah. So there was an audible gasp when when, when we screened it at Sundance. So there was there were three screenings there, and and uh, uh, really powerful moments. So I, I felt like that was a really fantastic. I mean, visual effects is always in support of the story. Everything, all, you know, all the filmmaking. Ideally, is, yes. I need to tell you about a better story. Um, so it was really a fantastic feeling to have that play out. Like we did this and we did all this hard work and it was really like stressful and you're, you know, you're spending a, a year with this footage, terrible stuff is going on in and, and, uh, but to see that there was a reaction. And then now since then, uh, in the last year, they got an audience at parliament, they got, um, uh, some mentions in us Congress, uh, the U.S. has changed some policy towards uh, Chechnya. Uh, so it is amazing to be part of a project that is affecting change in the world for positive. And um, uh, this, I, I might have the human rights bug. Now I'm going to be one of those people. Uh, but the the idea of being able to use our tools of technology to help humanity is just, uh, I'm, I'm over the moon about it. Yeah. I mean, the def- we always used to joke, it's like, you know, visual effects, it's not like we're saving lives or anything. It's like, well, now you are. <laughs> good good for you, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, amazing. <laughs> Amazingly. Amazingly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's not using, like using, oh, using oh, it a similar death, Using a similar technology <laughs> that's been villainized and being criminal, criminalized, you're using that same technology to save lives. And I think that's, that's a wonderful thing. You're basically showing technology as something, if you want to make it, <laughs> for good it's really good you know yeah so i mean really... a stick can be a lever or a bat um, yes you know, thank you <laughs> or a club yeah i mean it's it's not you don't you don't outlaw the stick right um you outlaw you outlaw hitting people with sticks yes um, exactly so exactly. so i think uh yeah in in and i think we we really we spent a lot of time and a lot of conversations about media integrity and mm-hmm. sort of there was a lot of broadcast in the world about fake news and fake media and we really were really careful to avoid 
anything that was inauthentic in that, mm. in that sort of a way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was funny. Uh, I saw two articles this, this week. One was somebody's figured out, so they're doing all this medical research, deep, deep learning and medical research, right? To mm-hmm. identify cancer and identify lung disease. And, um, uh, somebody, some white hat hackers took, uh, uh, machine learning model that I could identify brain tumors mm-hmm. and was able to add a brain tumor to an image that didn't have it. A, C, a 3D CT scan was able to fabricate a CT scan with a brain tumor in it and was able to fabricate another CT scan that had a brain tumor was able to remove that and, um, you know, put in its place a, a, a CT scan, a 3D CT scan that was, um, for all intents and purposes, didn't appear to have a the tumor. Right. Um, so that's, I, I mean, I, I think if you do it for research, it's one thing, but if you, if you start to do like, that's a deep fake. If someone were to hack medical records and add right. and remove elements to create or, you know, to give you the illusion of, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, well, we have this scan and it says you have a brain tumor. So we have to open up your head and, and, you know, I don't know. And then medical industry and profit motives, who knows what's going to happen with that. So, um, so that's where deep fakes becomes dangerous. Um, the other was, um, I saw just today, deep fakes of cities, uh, aerial Mm. satellite photography, being able to, to, uh, change, uh, the layout of a city. And so if, if, um, I think the real danger in, in, it is in the real danger of anything when you, you, when you live in an environment where you can't trust any information um that becomes a very like strange place to live so we've been lucky in our last 20 or 30 years as we've had access to this amazing amount of information which prior to that you only got what you know what you were told and now you feel like you've got the internet and you can go find information for yourself and so it's going to be interesting what happens when um anything can be faked Right. Um, which I guess, you know, I guess you can fake a photo, satellite photograph with Photoshop. Right. So is it really that different? I don't know. I don't know. I, d- I don't know. I and it, it happens all the time, though. But, you know, it happens all, all the time. I, I mean, I, I remember it was actually it was years and years and years ago. But it was some, some photo that came out. And it was on a bunch of networks, but we just happened to see it on CNN, I think it was, but all the network picked up the same picture and it was some guy who took a picture and it was some explosion that happened. I believe it might've been Beirut, but it was a massive explosion. I mean, Karen and I looked at it. my wife is, is also a visual effects artist and she looked at it and she goes, they cloned the crap out of the smoke. It's all, it's the same smoke everywhere. And they were like, they, they just made it way, way bigger in Photoshop and it looked terrible. But I was like, look at that huge explosion. And then all the news outlets were broadcasting it. And we're like, and then, you know, we wrote a letter to, I think, whoever we were on. And then it, the next day it was like, how can we trust journalists <laughs> or photojournalists? It's like, well, they're faking Multiple pictures. sources, right? Yeah. Multiple sources. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it's just a thing. Real-time that, information from multiple sources. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, uh, it's, it's yeah, very it's a difficult. Big, it's a big question. I think it goes yeah. back to what you were saying is, you, is, is the, the crime is how you use the tool and right. if you out, outlaw and have, I don't know, um, you know, penalties for people who generate fake media or who 
publish fake media, then you create a downward pressure against people just taking an image and throwing it up on the air before they even verify whether or not it's real. Yeah. Well, there are, um, listen, there are efforts, as, as, as you're well aware, there are efforts out there to try to uh, authenticate the, uh, or fake information. There are lots of efforts. There's a lot of with digital deep machine learning. Deep machine learning. They reverse engineer it. Yeah. So I did actually had Wael on, I forgot his last name. I'm sorry. He's a fantastic guy. Uh, about specifically uh, using his technology to identify what's been faked and not faked, right, in some certain ways. Um, and he basically, you know, it's the same process. You just reverse it. <laughs> you know, here's a fake, here's a real one. Which one is fake and which one's real? You know, and so that's the same, it's the same idea. But he does he does a lot of interesting things on top of that. But the problem is it's a cat and mouse game, right? Once you've done this so far, then you now, now the whole point of deep learning is like, can or can you fake it? The, the, the test is the computer to figure out if it knows which one's real and what's not real. And if it doesn't know which one's real or not real, then it has succeeded. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, they're called generative adversarial networks, and they're actually built into the same networks at this point. Right. The machines are testing themselves as they produce images. Right. So, yeah, it'll be, it'll, we'll get to the ability to generate images. But then Hollywood has been doing that for, I don't know, you talk to any good compositor and they can you know, make, make the grain perfect, make the hue and all the channels from any angle look, um, flawless. So, um, so our idea to, to manufacture digital humans, I mean, the real time efforts from, uh, DigiDog, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, not to be confused with DigiDog in New York, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, uh, the real time humans work from a single frame and we're getting there on motion. Um, uh, and this isn't even deep machine learning. This is just uh, manufacturing with computer graphics images right. that are uh, like the gaming technology is doing it at 240 frames a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so we'll, we'll eventually, I mean, if you look at games five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago, you can see the progression. And so mm-hmm. we will eventually be able to get to um, uh, pretty easily being able to synthesize reality in a convincing way um, sure for any viewer yeah yeah it's gonna be very interesting uh for sure for sure um, and luckily most humans are good or not you know nefarious right um and so uh society will continue to operate and the sky won't fall right um uh i think i think that's my sort of like looking at uh i mentioned plato earlier um, I read the Republic uh, recently, a few years ago, mm-hmm. and um, then did, that inter- interested me in doing a course on it. And the problems that we're going through today are not new. Like these are two thousand. That's year the old problem problems. is that we've we, we, we've been dumbed ourselves down so much that we forgot about <laughs> history. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's re- it is really interesting. It's sort of comforting in a in a historical perspective to know that. Um, you know, all through history, people have thought that the, you know, this problem was going to be the biggest problem and it was going to end us all. And so, um, I grew up with atomic bombs, threats in cold war. And so, uh, so I think people are good and we're going to make it through. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds great. Speaking of good and make it through, what is your, what are your plans for the future? (laughs) Um, well, so we, we've created a company around this idea of doing uh, identity um, hiding um, 
veiling people in, in documentary films. Mm-hmm. And there's several um, projects on the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're all terrible. Um, there's a huge amount of um, stuff going on in the world, uh, human trafficking, um, just s- small villages that have different ways of doing things. Um, uh, yeah, I, I w- wouldn't even know where to begin. On, on it's going to take on a toll on you, Ryan. <laughs> I mean, I have, philosophy is is this idea. Does it take a toll, or or do I feel better in the service of others? Right. Yeah. It, it, like that is uh, that is life is to be uh, in the service of of others and community. And I, I think it's a um, it's it's really different than thinking about you know a summer blockbuster. Um, yeah. because like, I want to get up and go to work every day, even though it is like, oh, it's the terrible situation, but I'm helping the word get out about it. And therefore somebody will, it will affect change for the better in the, in the world. So, so yeah, um, uh, I'm not too worried about, I'm, uh, worried about it at this point. I think, um, uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to become callous about the things um, I mean, I'm, I'm here because I have empathy, but, um, I think it also having some ability to help is a fantastic feeling. Sure. Sure. Well, that's, that's fabulous. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really glad we're, we're well over an hour, which is perfectly fine because I think we've had some great discussion you see we just like we we summed up the I first part no, no 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 you don't talk too much at all uh we summed up the first part really quickly uh which we got into a little bit more last time but i think we we really got down to the meat of this project which i think is like i said really really good and very important uh and i've always had a fascination with digital humans i always felt that digital humans have an extremely important role to play around us they're not just replacement or anything to be worried about in some case yes you need to be concerned about certain things but they definitely have a role to play um and i think that what you guys are doing is definitely a clear example that i now have in my repertoire of c (laughs) you know (laughs) look at this amazing stuff that can be done and saves lives and visual effects it's something whenever someone says that now i have a a clear case of the contrary (laughs) so yeah, and I, th- I think it is interesting to think for anybody that's in visual effects. Uh, I didn't like build this product and to go to try to pitch it to a director, mm-hmm. um, but being open to solving interesting problems is a really um, uh, for anybody in visual effects uh, because we deal in images and, and media drives the world. Right? Like how how just be open to the idea of helping? Yes. You know, in in a different way that maybe you didn't think of. Back to your well, I've never done it before. That but that's never stopped me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that. That was Andy, Andy, Andy Wessler who said that. Uh, yeah, I mean your first lesson, but uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, it's you it was great. Communicated uh, the quote. Yep, uh, it was it was a it was a great lesson, and I definitely uh, uh, learned a lot from it. And I, like I said, I'm still learning, uh, and uh, it's it's really interesting. And now you're not only you're learning, you're teaching computers to learn as well. <laughs> That's so. a whole other fascinating topic. Yeah, for sure. Watching a computer learn, we realize how uh, how we are products of our environment. Right. Like, obviously, there's some wiring. But also, um, uh, when the machines get it wrong, they get it wrong in these really interesting ways. Yep. 
that shows you that they're trying to make sense of the this new information that they didn't have. Right. And they can only map it to information that they do have. Right. And it really sums up like how people are programmed by information and you right. can't, you can't see something. People can't see something new. We, right. not people, other people, we, <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's, it, we can only adapt what we know. We can only apply the information that we've learned to a new situation to help us understand it. And that yep. clouds perception of anything. Yeah, I don't want to get too political, but clearly when you see two paths on a social network that have different ideologies, they've been trained by different networks and different data sets. Uh, so that it's, it's impossible. Algorithms. It's impossible for them to understand how the other sees the way they do. Yeah, so, yeah. so, yep, you yeah. have to sort of cross pollinate in order for them to come to an understanding. <laughs> now there's a, there's an idea that I, I, if I had any spare time right now, which I don't, so I'm just going to put this out there. If anybody like is interested in, in it, um, um, GPT two, GPT three, these, these language models, uh -huh. how come nobody's trained a language model to close that gap? Right. Like go into your, your bot is watching Twitter and it sees an argument mm -hmm. and it goes in and it smooths out the argument like a mediator. Like why is there not a media? Why are there not mediator bots? There's flame bots. <laughs> But there aren't any mediator bots. I yep. feel like we need an army of mediator bots just to go, the, all right, well, I appreciate your point of view. Right. <laughs> or so, if, if your, um, your news feed or your interests come up, try feeding in a little bit of the other side of that interest so you can get a little bit of something different, you know? Yeah, so, there is actually, a, I think there's a, um, a, a, either a browser plugin or something. I saw something, somebody had done something like this where it would like give me like, it, or I think it's called Both Sides. I right. could be wrong on that, but yeah. uh, for any topic, you get stories yep. from different media sources. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, that's interesting. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. We, I do appreciate uh, we, it as well. We won't be able to go to uh, the real-time conference in person because it's virtual, but it's nice to hang out with you here, and I'm sure we'll hang out with you, quote-unquote, online. Technically speaking, this the real-time conference is happening next week, so you'll be presenting next week, so I'm excited about Very that. Very excited to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I will also, uh, yeah, but when, we, when, when, I, when I'm finally fully inoculated or as inoculated as I feel comfortable, we should definitely get together and hang out and catch up with a lot of stories, for sure. <laughs> Love it. Love it. The idea. Maybe <laughs> by the beach. Maybe by the beach. I go to the beach a lot these days because of my fishing habits. So that's what it's. <laughs> so I can't, I can't wait to see the, see how fly fishing works in the surf. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, Ryan. Okay. You too.